Hey, and welcome to the Security Distillery podcast. I'm Jess, a strategist with a student-led think tank run by the University of Glasgow's International Masters in Security, Intelligence and Strategic Studies. We ran an event in late November titled Forecasting the Disinformation Landscape 2020 and Beyond. I was joined by Soraya Harding and Danny Steed for a discussion about how we need to rethink truth in a post-truth age. Soraya Harding is a mobile forensics and computer forensics lecturer at the University of Portsmouth and a cyber volunteer at Hampshire Constabulary. Danny Steed is a lecturer, author, public speaker and consultant who specialises in national security in the cyber domain. Without any further ado, I'll leave to Soraya to introduce herself and some of the key trends she's seeing. Um, hi everyone. I well, I'm in the Isle of Wight. Um, I've been working with mobile forensics, computer forensics. I'm working currently in Portsmouth University, and it's um, it's quite interesting from my perspective to see the landscape of um, this information because we have depending on which part of the world you are in terms of information, you will see you have type of um, such information in the, in the American continent and another one in this side of the world, because we have put um, a lot of emphasis in what is the data protection. Um, but in the other side of the world, that doesn't really exist. So if you go for all the, all the uh, third world countries that does, doesn't really exist. So there are a lot of things that we take for granted and other things that um, we actually put too much emphasis. I will say, um, if you look, for example, what is the, the mobile side of it, especially this year, all the social media platforms kind of had a boom of misinformation. And even worse, when the pandemic started to be launched, because if you saw during the, the pandemic, the, the, the heat, the, the big heat of the pandemic, everyone was having, um, every, everyone had solutions in WhatsApp, in Discord, everyone had, um, well, all these um, hypotheses and everything, and everyone was believing it. So, and then everyone was believing that they were having certain um, new solutions for, for what it was happening. And, and because everything became believable, uh, everyone started sharing and sharing and sharing. So it, we have reached a point that information is in there, but it's not verified. How many of us pretty much just share some information that we found on Facebook? But when we just, because they, they take to our core in terms of could be feelings, could be beliefs, could be um, social um, social backgrounds. And because we believe in that, no, we, we don't verify anymore. And that's what it, it happens. Now, it's, it's depending as well of how long you've been in that area, you start verifying. And then how much trust we have in our own data as well. That's what we start looking at if it is or not valuable information. So, um, but then, now you have that as, as how it is at this moment in time. And now we, we look at how it's going to be later on. Um, I had some students interesting enough to tell me, oh, we don't use Facebook anymore. Um, we use Discord. And I don't know how many of you have used Discord, 
when I open Discord, Discord is a um, platform when you see everything, everyone, and it's overpopulated and you have messages pretty much arriving all the time. And by the time you answer one, one message, another message arrives and you don't, and then misinformation happens because you probably answered something that it was already answered before. So that's, that's the other part is how timely information is coming. So, and, and, and because the, all these new platforms don't really count the part of, all right, needs to be on time. And how many of us look that the information is accurate? Again, so we, we just see that the information arrives, we read it, and we believe it's accurate. So it, that's, that's the part that has been emerging. It's all the new social platforms. How many of you use your com computers anymore? The majority of us are pretty much stuck in our mobile phones. So all the information is in your mobile phone or your TV or your smart TV, but the computer is not in there anymore. You don't, you don't really go in the browser, you always go in an app. So the app is only giving you the information that is, it wants you to know. So that's, that's slowly, slowly how it's going. So it's going to kind of, um, I, I don't know if you remember when everything is that, when the cookies were starting to be introduced and you should have accepted the cookies at first was something that you kind of thought, is that a virus or, or is a malware? But now if a website comes with a cookie, you don't even look at it anymore, you just agree. Yeah, so that is already tailoring what type of information is going to come to you. You start looking at that and then again, everything is being tailored slowly, slowly of what you like at that moment in time. And what you like might not be what information that you need at that moment in time. So how, how we see it now, if you see it from, from the public side, the society and all that, it is, is, is what you end up having in, in all the social platforms. But in the private side, um, especially now, we had certain companies that kind of took over. Look at us, we are in Zoom. Yes, so the, those ones have gone in the private sector. And then again, we believe we, we have been given that false sense of security that information is encrypted, is confidential, and is um, good for everyone to look at, or is not going to be shared with anyone else by the social media that's saying it's encrypted. That's it, it's encrypted. But how many people really understand that are in the, in the private sector what is encrypted. Probably all of us know what is encrypted, but if you, if you put that to a secretary, if you put somebody that hadn't had that very deep knowledge or very well explained them what it is, they, they will just accept it again. So that's the part of the information that will slowly be gone down in it and it becomes normal. So, but how, how do you think we should mitigate this? It's a bit difficult to think, um, well, we start mitigating, but then um, how not to form a panic as well? Because you can be too secure of everything. And then you have, how many of you have antivirus in your mobile phones? Just think about that. Nobody has antivirus. I bet probably one or two of you have an antivirus. Hey, you see, we have one at least in there. Yeah, but then, um, but probably that none of you have a VPN. 
let's see how many i have another one <laughs> yeah so we, we have certain things that but then again not all the public knows that no no the public thinks all right well actually i'm paying with my phone I'm paying with my phone and that that's the the, the data i'm giving away so again that all that the things are going to see well we we kind of start mitigating our security in a way but we're not mitigating the information yes how are we mitigating that the, the information is the real information so then we go for the part that you you go for the information for believable verified and authenticated uh, sources how many are they which ones are the ones that we can actually trust the, the one that is verifiable the one that i think is is good for me will be going to journals that have been published that they've gone through all the verification process but that's again in the academic side but what you will do for the um public side public side everyone in the public for information you go to the news and then you have different rates for the news and then you go if you want information automatically you're going to google and what google gives you the first page is wikipedia and that does that happens nearly every single time yeah and that what do we actually do is actually read wikipedia yeah because that gives us a start point we didn't verify is that okay how many of you read wikipedia and go down to the sources and actually go to that source and see that that's actually the information that was verified no 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 we have the old ones in there <laughs> yeah but it is it is you see obviously you go to the sources read what it is and then try to find the chain and chain and chain and see who is the next one that has quoted or cited that but uh, well but that's there but then we have again part of um i think the, the part of the mitigation will be to in, in some ways the verification I have tried, strangely enough, during this, this pandemic, I had, um, had a message through WhatsApp in my family that sent me and said, um, well, all the, there is a, a board of doctors, they sent me a video as well, that said that it's a conspiracy. And they sent me the video and they sent me all this panel and all this other thing. And I said, all right, so who are these doctors? And they go, like, well, they are saying it, they, they are these, doctors in in germany and in england and all that i said but why are you going and see who are these doctors what have they published what they what is actually the work and i'm not what they said is true because they are doctors so again that's the part in, it, it, i try to bring it down back to them to say well verify first and then share it to me because i when you share it to me automatically gets ingrained into me that all right let's go and verify that and then I verify what one person said and end up looking that it was actually something that was like a meme. meme. So it's, it's, it was nothing, it was something just to disinform. It became a little bit like a deep fake in, in the end, where everything was, it was made to look like it was news, that it was formal, but it was in the end something that it was pretty much just to create panic create create a conflicts between people and then and, and as i said at the beginning i said depend the information depends on where you get it in this side of the world we are very aware of security of data protection um, 
we are very aware of authentication, but in, in where I come from, Ecuador, um, when I mention about data protection, I say, no, 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 we just need that you, you extract this and put this and we just need a signature, that's it. And because you sign it, they value that that's good information. But again, from where, you, from where the information came, the data protection doesn't exist in there, it was from here. The GDPR, again, doesn't exist, came from here. And if you remember what happened with the GDPR, when it just decided to, um, to launch 2018, all the emails that you had as a spam decided to send you an email for you to consent to keep sending you spams of misinformation. So it's all, all these little things that we, we, we don't see, but then in short term, it doesn't really make any, any um, it, it doesn't really make you, like you say, it hurts anything. It doesn't damage anything in short term. But when that becomes part of the culture of believing anything, you start damaging systems, you start damaging the whole, um, organizations because there is there is no a culture of of verifying information anymore yes. and then as a long as a long term you start just um, believing anything that comes and then the only thing that will be there is that the sire triangle that we normally we were ingrained from from the beginning of university that they tell you right everything needs to be confidential has to have integrity and it has to be authenticated and valid and all this it goes out of the window. That was great, Soraya. I really loved what you were saying about, you know, these hierarchies, these like ranked hierarchies within these black boxes of information. And it's just getting, you know, worse and worse and worse because it all just accrues. Really, really interesting. Um, and I guess I'll just hand over to Danny to sort of give your sort of piece. And then I guess we will sort of move into, into the discussion part as well. So uh, the way I'm going to go in the next uh, 15 minutes or so is quite a lot more geopolitical and historical uh, with this. For those of you who have grown up in an era where conspiracy theorizing has, um, as someone put it a good few years ago, really went mainstream with 9-11. Before, it hadn't really launched on the internet. It was in the enclaves of things like the X-Files and you had to be really in with quite niche literature to fall into a lot of misinformation traps. Whereas you've all grown up in an age and much of us, our young adult lives have been spent trying to surf these waves and filter out like you know siphoning gold you know truth from all of these nuggets of dirt and you know fool's gold as it were so the top line that i put to jessica and ethan was new structures empowering old strategies uh, just to really show you how when you study your history properly you will really recognize a very great deal of what's going on. It's just that then you've got to recognize, ooh, what are the new toys? What are the new structures that are giving fresh oxygen to things that we've seen a lot in our past? And we're terrible at, particularly in the UK, at romanticizing our history, but not necessarily being 
fully aware of our own history and uh, for anyone that's watched the crown in the last fortnight uh you'll know exactly what i mean where i've been pausing constantly to explain to my fiance well that's not what happened with margaret thatcher's administration and the all of the broadsheets have been ripping it to pieces for weeks so if you want the most basic intro of disinformation with dramatic license and how the newspapers have been trying to counter this. Just look at the Crown and the coverage in recent weeks. But the key argument that I'm going to really put to you here is that these practices, which uh, seem hard to really pick at, we've seen them all before. What we have now is that we have a far bigger battleground opening up about truth itself, which is far more dangerous than chasing a solution to a single technological problem or a single policy dynamic. The thing that is really new here, or certainly hasn't been seen for at least living memory, if not many generations, is that the, the value of objective truth is now a debate ground itself. So um, where am I going to go with this? Um, this is about these new structures that empower everybody to be in the game. Historically, um, you were, you know, the gatekeepers were those who were literate. And we mustn't underestimate how the rate of literacy um, has increased in the last, what, two to three centuries? from times past where there weren't printing presses and such like, and you could have a stranglehold on what information even went out. Whereas you know, the structures now, well, literacy combined with technology creates an ease of entry and an entry point that just allows this proliferation to have an audience because you know everyone will be able to read it. You no longer have to attend a sermon to absorb truth, right? Um, even just thinking of different religious denominations and the different viewpoints on this historically. Why are there so many splits in Christianity, just for one example, to take certain positions on a singular text? Um, that should be quite a grounding point for long, long historic narratives over the interpretations of truth and how you get those over to the masses. But now it's sheer volume a tsunami of tsunamis of information where I, I don't even bother trying to follow Twitter feeds. Um, it, it's like that adage of trying to take a drink from a water hydrant that gets used popularly for the internet. Just the volume that is out there makes all of the types of verification that uh, Sonia was uh, talking about so much harder. Uh, the jobs for scholars, for journalists, for students, it's, it's amplified. It's not just multiplied, it's then amplified across multiple outlets. I hadn't even heard of the Discourse app. Um, I'm probably betraying my, my age um, at this stage with social media, but you just can't even keep up with the proliferation of apps, the different channels, let alone the content across all of these. But you have to bring it back to some simplicity. The structures broadly cyberspace taking that into a more narrow perspective because cyberspace is actually a really big area the more narrowed perspective would be the world wide web anyone who had a childhood in the 90s might recognize that phrase the closest most of you who are undergrads today will get is when you just type www 
and I, I, I would even wonder in classes now how many even knew what it stands for because we've moved so much further forward. But in the, the relatable structure, we're talking about media and social media. And I really hate just leaping to social media because traditional media is still a huge player in all of this that I'll come back to. Why do these structural changes matter? Now, the libertarian view, just to give you a very quick history, a bit of a contextual history of why cyberspace evolved as it did. And you'll come across phrases when you go through the, uh, like the history of technology, but computing particularly, the liberating promise of technology, which was an old phrase by IBM that was supposed to be about talking about how to liberate humanity away from slaving in factories and putting you know auto, uh, automation in practice but it translated nicely into the computing age as well liberating a lot of those like mental arithmetics hard mathematics and harder processing tasks away from us mentally so it was just an extension of the liberation from a, a physical perspective then to a mental um, perspective and when you go to the, um, the original concept papers that Sir Tim Berners-Lee put for the World Wide Web, there's a key phrase in there, the access to any information anywhere. Now that betrays a huge liberal assumption and one that quite rightly you can see comes from a scholar. You know, our inherent belief that knowledge should be accessed by all. Who would deny a student? access to information if it helps empower them right and of course that becomes a double-edged blade as we found out but in the 1990s these technologies arrived at exactly the same time as the cold war ended and that's a historic context that i really outline um, in in my latest book on the the politics technology of cyberspace where well we had this apolitical honeymoon where we saw these technologies as an inherently liberating technology that tyranny could not possibly survive in the face of people who could now access any information especially when it allowed them to challenge the tyrant's view the tyrannical regime that fears a populace that has access to a dissenting voice how naive we were, because if you should be raising your eyebrows to me at this stage and think, well, Danny, we're 25, 30 years in the future and authoritarianism is on the rise and it's challenging us geopolitically. So what went wrong? And this is where I'll come to this old strategy side of things of the liberal assumptions that was baked into the DNA of these technologies and among our societies that we just hope would gestate worldwide well other actors got involved our intelligence services tyrants you know, capitalist agendas who were out to make profit and have um, created models that have taken us elsewhere you know, need need i say mark zuckerberg um, but when you start this go to this word the et um, etymology of disinformation for those of you who are students if you're going to find guidance about what is disinformation how is it practiced you're going to go to two major historical archives your military history and intelligence studies uh, because this is typically been a practice in these security areas 
And just to give you the really just leap to the grandest um, historic example of this, Operation Fortitude in 1944, the Allies' deception plan to convince Nazi Germany that the invasion of Europe was going to happen anywhere other than Normandy. And within that, you had specific things like Agent Garbo, which was where a corpse was dropped off the coast of Portugal with a briefcase of falsified information that was intended to fall into the hands of the Nazis and convince them the invasion was going to be at Calais. So what you see is a practice historically of limited objectives, particularly by Western nations, to use disinformation for particular reasons. And when you really start going through your Cold War history, you're going to realise um, it's Western um, in particular, but not net exclusively, who wrote the playbook on disinformation. We simply used other terminology. So in the 1950s, black propaganda was the word you will see in all of the intelligence files, such as broadcasting um, to Middle Eastern countries from Cyprus, which was a huge thing and still continues. Uh, Radio Free Europe, which the Americans sponsored um, around the Czech border, the East-West Germany border at the times, just into Eastern Europe, which was key in instigating the Czechoslovakian uprising in 1956, based on a disinformation that if you rise up, America will back you and Americans will march into Czechoslovakia. And of course, they were crushed by the Soviets. So you start seeing, oh, there's a long history to this. It isn't necessarily all about cyberspace. That's just simply the new means, you know, the emperor's new clothes, as it were. But tyrants can use technology as well, which was something we thought wouldn't happen 25 years ago. But uh, just to give you... Um, you know, what we're really generating here towards with, with tyrants and authoritarian practice. So I'm going to read an extract for you. The very disrespect of Russians for objective truth, indeed their disbelief in its existence, leads them to view all stated facts as instruments for furtherance of one's ulterior purpose or another. That phrase could very easily come out of the past four years, post-truth alternative facts. Its source is actually George Kennan, the 1949 long telegram of famed Cold War history that was sent from the Moscow Embassy, American's Embassy of Moscow, back to DC to challenge State Department policy in the early Cold War. And it's seminal in framing American views of the way Russians saw the world. So what you see in this um, really is there you need historic context, not just about technology, but about philosophy. How do different policies, politiques, uh, uh, political bodies, look at the world? What frames and assumptions do they build into this? Because you will see most people are trying to use technology for purposes and objectives that have long been in existence and go back a very long way. So trends, where are we going with this? The disinformation that we see right now seems to have a bit of a dual dynamic going on here. We have the way, particularly in our own societies, in Western societies, they're reopening old wounds. Fundamental contradictions and injustices that were never truly reconciled, um, especially in America with the way Black Lives Matters has erupted, 
it, that would not have erupted without social media and that transparency to show what actually does happen on the streets, um, giving genuine truth um, to an activist movement. But that is there because the fundamental social fault line in American society has always been based on race. In the UK, the sensitivities between the nation building up the United Kingdom has always had big sensitivities which are probed more and more and more now with the de uh, devolved administrations. So this macro trend has really been building, um, given this life by the technologies and the structures they've built, truth itself is now up for grabs. And that is the big trend I really want to put in your minds for discussion. And there's a phrase as well that Obama, Barack Obama, put up in the last couple of weeks to really illustrate the incredible scenes we've been witnessing of the American election um, over the water. Truth decay. That truth is decaying in discourse all of the time. And to be a bit of an edge on provocateur, if truth is now contested, do we start philosophically pushing towards a point where all information could be disinformation? That is a very dangerous place to be. And it's definitely a place that authoritarianism would love our debates to be heading because they would trip us into this minefield and this trap of arguing whether there even is an objective truth rather than talking about the accepted facts and what they mean, which has always been at the heart of Western debates, liberal debates since the Renaissance, really. That's really in the DNA of this. So what solutions are there? Um, if you chase every single piece of disinformation, uh, to give a really infantile analogy, but it's very true, it's like watching a primary school game of football. You know, when you have five-year-olds learning the game and you see... 20 kids running for the ball at the same time you know they will chase the ball but miss the bigger game and that's what we risk doing here we'll miss the forest for the trees so we need to understand not just disinformation as a concept but the structure that will influence it most in this century which is cyberspace the outcome for what i term and i, I really argue strongly in the book that the, there is a geopolitical battle for the future of cyberspace going on right now. I would go as far as to say it may well be the biggest geopolitical battle of the first half of the 21st century. Whoever wins for the vision of the cyberspace that we will see evolve um, from this point on will have the ability to influence and perhaps even control the greatest Pro, you know, greatest commons to be able to produce and distribute information that he, uh, humanity has ever seen. That is very big, big game geopolitics we're talking about here. So that will have a very long term effect. Will authoritarianism go on the march and have greater success at controlling cyberspace? If they do, then uh, disinformation is going to get a lot uglier. But of course, we have our own challenges in liberal societies at controlling massive tech firms, our own social injustices that need reconciling, as well as the actual debates that we want to empower. But there are a couple of uh, very specific areas, just to, just to put some tangible ones on the table. Um, I prefer to think of them as battlegrounds, really, at this point. Um, 
social media as publishers, as keeps being argued. Um, for anyone that hasn't um, read or listened to Sasha Bowen Cohen's speech to the, um, that The Guardian reported on brilliantly, um, where he talks about Facebook as the greatest propaganda machine in history, it's one of the most insightful speeches of this post-truth era, and it comes from a professional comedian of all people, but it is very nuanced and straight to the point. But that's social media outlets have a big case to answer for are they indeed publishers and need to be responsible in the way that traditional media has been forced to over the past two centuries uh, gradually. Traditional media as the second battleground. Philosophically, they should be centre ground in the fight against disinformation. They have the training, the repute, the resources to challenge this. But um, where philosophically they belong in the battle, they still haven't rec uh, figured out how to deal with the challenges to their business model that have been there since the 90s. And how can they compete against places like Facebook or Twitter, which operate on different business models, but importantly to different statutes and different regulations entirely. So it's an uneven playing field in that respect, even though you would hope if it levels up a bit more, there would be a great deal more equity on the disinformation that comes at us in you know, rates of knots all the time. But then the final point just to close with is about centre ground politics. And um, after the Brexit referendum result, um, an, old, uh, an old face returned uh, in Britain, Tony Blair, and he made quite a public statement about the centre ground has been abandoned. Very clearly, he saw it as a watershed that centre-ground centre politics that was worked very hard towards the mid-80s to achieve and get places there is gone. And it's certainly gone in America. Um, and we have no idea if it would come back. So that's, that's where I'll, I'll close with on this. There are huge structural issues to deal with, which are about our geopolitics. But then there are a few key battlegrounds as well that will shape the, the way the trends for disinformation uh, will go. If you like this, then why not check out our Twitter at The Sec Distillery, as well as our blog on thesecuritydistillery.org. For more podcasts, follow us on Spotify. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via our email address, information at thesecuritydistillery.org.